And when we speak, we are afraid our words will not be heard nor welcomed. But when we are silent, we are still afraid. So it is better to speak, remembering we were never meant to survive. Welcome to Better to Speak, the podcast, where we use storytelling to transform silence into language and action. I'm your host, Casey Felton. Black storytelling is the foundation of so much of what I do. Whether that's the Better to Speak, my writer's collective named after Harriet Wilson, who was the first black woman to be a published novelist, or through my studies as a journalism student at Howard University. Stories told by black people for black people have the power to shift hearts and minds, but most importantly, they have the power to affirm and heal black people through generations. Throughout my childhood, I often felt that sharing black stories involved nothing but rehashing generational trauma and oppression. And while that may be partially true, I also have plenty of examples of a more positive relation to black history. When I look to stories like In Our Mother's Garden and High on the Hog on Netflix, I feel it while watching Insecure, Helmed by Issa Rae. I feel it when I read and see the stories of black women in black legacy publications like Essence and the newly relaunched Ebony magazines, because it all reminds me of the lineage of collective resilience and resolve that I belong to. That said, season two of the podcast will still align with their platform Dare to be Powerful, but I'm trying something new with the formatting. New episodes will be presented in volumes, and each volume will explore a different area or theme under the overarching topic of power, just to kind of group episodes together. The first volume, The Power of Storytelling, aims to cover how stories, words, and information are powerful tools to cultivate power in the Black community and for Black people in our individual journeys. The first volume, The Power of Storytelling, aims to cover how stories, words, and information are powerful tools to cultivate strength in the Black community and for Black people in our individual journeys. This episode features Angela Ford, who is the founder and executive director of the Obsidian Collection Archives, a national nonprofit organization focused on getting the images and articles of African-American newspapers and small archives into the marketplace and on the internet. The Obsidian Collection is a hub of resources for Black journalists, content creators, media outlets, and archivists who define the narratives of our community, past, present, and future. I have to add that Angela is also a family friend of my dad's and my Aunt Tammy's when they were growing up in Chicago, so it was great to connect with her and learn about the great work that she and the Obsidian Collection are doing to archive Black history and connect Black storytellers to that history and to each other. To learn more, you can visit their website, theobsidiancollection.org, search their image library, and if you're a Black journalist or storyteller in another capacity, you can join me in signing up for their database of Black writers called Rote, which is on the website as well. And as always, be sure to follow Better to Speak by visiting our website, signing up for our newsletter, or following us on social media, all of which you can find linked in the show notes, along with additional links and resources to support this episode's conversation. Uh, my name is Angela Ford, and I'm the founder and executive director of the Obsidian Collection. I formed this organization, which is essentially digitizing uh, Black history and creating social, um, I'm sorry, software solutions for Black media, for modern Black media. I came into it because I was looking for images of my grandmother and who was in the Chicago Defender newspaper in the 50s a lot. And it was upon looking for those images that I learned that a lot of the images, images were disintegrating and not digitized. So I wanted to make sure that future generations could see past generations en masse. And then can you talk about the process of finding and actually archiving and digitizing the images? 
Well, a lot of people have um, home scanners where you can just kind of scan an image one at a time. A lot of the younger generation can, the, the images come digitized because you take the pictures from your smartphones and other apparatus and they start as digitized efforts. But what we're doing is going after the larger organizations with tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of images to digitize on mass. And we've got professional equipment that will scan things on mass. And then we have teams that can enter the metadata and make this available on a platform for the world to see. And so what would you say is the, the biggest thing that you've learned um, throughout the process of building this archive? The biggest thing I've learned is I'm grateful that the elders just kept the images. If uh, my generation, which is kind of uh, Gen X and it's, it's, I'm sketchy, I'm on the front end of that. But if our generation spent a lot of more time assimilating into kind of what we thought would be a welcoming mainstream America. And with that, a lot of the images were sold. A lot of the images um, were sold to mainstream audiences and then they're filtered into galleries and exhibitions that only seem to highlight poverty, violence, struggle, despair, when all of the good images of how we saw ourselves, how we take pictures as any other human beings, the joy and the laughter isn't, isn't elevated. So a lot of the history, I was there and I'm looking at stuff from the 60s and 70s going, okay, that, that's not my experience at all. I'm not saying those things didn't happen, but that's not the sum total of what happened in a 24 hour day. So uh, I'm grateful that the elders before me people over 55 um, just kept the images. They didn't say anything. They didn't, they didn't get into the fight or, or turn them over to a university and hope for better. They just kept them in their garages, in their basements, in their attics. And so of course we've discussed you're working to not only archive like, you know, the photos and black journalism, but in, in building a network of black journalists. So can you talk about the intention behind that and why you wanted to build or do more than just um, archive the photographs? Well, so our, our organization was to help black journalism. And, and I started personally cleaning up the Chicago Defender archives. Like I said, I was looking for my grandmother's images. I ran a non, I, I still run that very local community nonprofit. So it was through that organization we got grants to do the Chicago Defender archives. Um, and I just thought, oh my gosh, if all you young writers could see all of these photos, because in that room, we were told, oh, it's probably only 10,000 images in there because the family that sold the newspaper, the original defender owned family, when they sold it, they took probably 80% of the photographs, 80 or nine, you know, I don't know how many were there, but they took the lion's share. So people said, oh, it's probably only 10,000 images in there. And we found a quarter of a million images in there. And I tell people, you can't see a quarter of a million images of yourself in, in one shot with, without your life being changed. I, it was like being bit by a radioactive spider. So once we saw that, I thought there's just millions of stories to tell from these images right here. This, this, this is it, this is all we need. And then I learned there were millions of other images and then I learned just, and this is through my own exercise as a non-journalist, as a non-storyteller, 
oh my gosh, it's hard to find black journalists. You know, like they all know each other. Like, oh, you could call Tim and then Tim might know John. And then John can tell you about Teresa. And it's like, wait, this is insane. And I, I, I met some young journalists that run some young media outlets. And I said, how are you finding the black journalists? Because again, we had assimilated into these main social platforms like LinkedIn and things like that. But you can't search for each other in there. Like, just show, can you just show me the black ones, please? <laughs> you know, that's, that's, that's inappropriate. But at the same time, I'm trying to tell a cultural story that should be told through the eyes of a, a, a cultural lens. And, and so we came up with rote because we have to be able to find each other. We, I can read a story and so many people can. You can read a story and tell if a black person wrote it or not. Whether, whether, and especially if it's about black people and you just go, we would have never said this. This is, you know, these, these mainstream op opinions of what they think we are. I'm not even discounting that story, but I would like to read a story just written for us by us. I, I, sometimes I would like to know that I can go to that institution because for my age, and I'm 56, I grew up with that. There was an ebony on every coffee table in every black home in this country, you know, because there was no social media or no Facebook. You, it just didn't occur to me that that would be my life, that I would be clamoring for black stories. And then a lot of these things, you can read it and go, well, a black person didn't write that. Now I got to filter through and try to gauge what is the truth? What is the reality? What, what facts do I need for my black life to, to parse out of this non-black story? Um, and it's exhausting, it's tiring. You can find people by task, but you can't find them by ethnicity. And it's very important to the culture that black stories be told by black people, at least a little bit. You know, it, it's it's fine if everybody wants to speak to the culture. And, and to be honest, I, I would push back on, is that fine? But in the meantime, it is equal, it is very important that black people tell black stories. I mean, I, I just, I, I think only mainstream America feels justified and authorized to just speak on everybody's culture, right? You know, you don't find black people going, I'm just gonna write and tell you what the Hasidic Jew experience is and what their plight is and what their goals are because I have the right to do that. You know, it's just like something that culturally we don't do, but almost everybody feels very comfortable explaining to me what the black experience is, what the black problems are, what the black voice is. And it's like, I've, I've built a lot of tolerance for that because I live in America, right? But on the other hand, when I'm seeking information, I just need to be able to find black voices to tell me black things that happened. I, um, I don't drive anymore. So it's funny, I take rideshare uh, most of the time when I, when I uh, need to get it around. And if I have one more rideshare driver explain to me what the black plight in the black situation is, you know, I'm gonna get my star ratings lower. <laughs> <laughs> like, listen, um, just make a left up here, man. You know, I, I just miss me with your, you know, a biased news opinion of what you think we're doing. I just don't, I, but like I, I 
say often, in my youth, I grew up with black voices. Every, every home had an ebony, a jet, and a local black newspaper, full stop. And if you didn't have it, then it wasn't a black home. It was like, what's up, you know, where's your, um, where's your ebony? You know, because I was going to finish reading while you made dinner or while we we're waiting because I was started an article at home and I'm going to finish it over here. That 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 was my entire youth. And and even when I got to college and was roommates with tons of girls, you know, it was four of us. You know how you do. But uh, it was four of us. We subscribed to Essence. I subscribed to Essence and we had to have a whole family meeting because. I would get home and my essence is dog-eared. Somebody that did half the crossword puzzles then tore out a sample of makeup. And I was like, listen here, listen. I see the essence first. And then when I bring it out here on the coffee table, y'all can have at it. But I am tired of getting these raggedy dog-eared magazines. Like I have not, you know, and I remember that meeting. I was a junior. I was about 20. I'm still friends. We all still thick as thieves. And, uh, but, we had so many positive black media voices for black people telling black people, I didn't realize what the world thought of us. We thought so much of ourselves. And, and I missed that. So we came up with rope so that you young media creators could just go to a wealth of people and build your teams and tell your stories. I, I, I'm, I think we assimilated too much, we dispersed, we, can, we can't find each other, you know, but you guys need to stay closer in touch. And that's what Road is about. And you actually touched on what um, I was gonna ask in my next question. You know, we had these legacy publications like Essence and Ebony and Jet. Um, and in recent years, you see a lot of these magazines either making this um, the shift to digital. So I see like Essence is thriving with the digital covers um, and other things that they're doing now. Um, I saw the Chicago Defender pivoted to digital in 2019 um, or they end up stopping publication altogether. And so I think um, in my journalism classes, we talk a lot about, you know, is this a bad thing? Like, of course we want our legacy publications to stick around, but um, in your opinion, what would you say is like the the factors that kind of play into that, and what um, you know, if we are trying to save these legacy publications, like what work needs to be done in order to make that happen? I, I think that's a that's a brilliant question because I was asking myself that. I learned a lot from my own son, who is thirty one, you know, black man, where I tried to hand him a magazine, and he said, "Well, is is, is there a link?" I mean, like why? Why would I take that anvil that you're trying to put in my hand when you can just shoot me a link? I, I'll read what you're saying. And I was like, well, it's right. I, I'm standing here in front of you and I'm handing you this. And he was like, well, you know what would be better? If you pick up your phone and send me a link. And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> that's when I realized, okay, so your generation, digital comes natural. Cause for me, I got to put on different glasses. I got to figure out how to zoom the screen. I got to figure out what buttons to hit. It just takes a lot for me to read something digitally. If I can, if I see a book, I know book. I live, I live book, I grew up on book, you know. Um, so I get that part. And so I think what I think is important for Black Legacy Press, which is, which is hard for others, but very easy for me, is you got to listen to these young people. You know, your video game level is just a whole nother level. I, I just can't, I look at those video games, is it, that's, so that's not a movie. Is that what you're saying? That's not a movie. And they're like, nope, 
I'm playing with somebody else in the world. We've got teams from around the world and you're talking, so now I've lost. Now, all these things have happened while I've stood there and I don't know what I'm looking at. So what I think is essential is that Black Legacy Press bring in the young people and listen to how you think this should go because it's gonna be very different from how we think it should go. And I can always tell when I'm talking to somebody my age because I finished college in 1986 and they will pull out that 1986 playbook and say, what well, we gotta do. And I promise you in, 18, in 1986, there was no internet. There was barely fire and electricity, right? You know, so this, what you guys, the way you guys engage and it changes so fast. You know, you go to the bathroom and come back. Nobody's on this app. Everybody's on TikTok. I'm like, Tick, what? You know, so it, that's what the legacy press has to do. And I've been talking to the legacy press because, you know, we're digitizing a lot of the images and I'm, and I'm, and I'm seeing resistance. And, you know, and I, and I, cause, cause they've had so much success for decades doing things a certain way. So, you, you can make a cogent argument, they're not wrong. They've got the power, they got the money, but they are wrong. Things changed dramatically. And, and so when I, when I see new announcements and, and new people have taken over the helm of some of these different, you know, I immediately look to that person. I'll look them up on LinkedIn or the internet and I'll go, nah. you know, it's, 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 it's yesterday's success, not necessarily tomorrow's success. And so what we're doing with the Obsidian, my chief tech officer is 24 years old. He has to correct me at least twice in every phone call. So we've got it down to where he will text me while we're on a Zoom call with other people. Like you just, you just pull back. Cause I'm saying stuff that like abacus, stone tablet and chisel. I'm saying things from yester millennia and he's trying to talk to these people. They, they, they're talking about something else. And I don't, and I don't know these new languages. So, um, so I'm building Obsidian for you guys. I'm building like, look, here's all the images. Here's all the people. Y'all whip it up into whatever you just listen. I just, you know, it's like, it's like, I'm gonna put the food over here. I'm putting all the ingredients over here. Cause you all are making new cakes and you making new, new pies. You know, if you want a recipe on my old pie, I'll sit over here and share, share some information. A cyber pie. <laughs> you know, so, they don't need my, you know, like, hey, we did it the way we did it. Now you do what you're going to do, you know. And my great-grandmother lived to be 100. So she had just yielded. I'm not really sure what you're talking about. But it's, are you happy? Is that good? Is that okay? Mm -hmm. So, because I was explaining cable to her back when cable was invented because she lived from 1895 to 1995. So cable was new and it was more than three channels and she was, she was there when TV itself was invented. So it was like, hmm, so you can change the channel from here? Hmm, we'll change it. You know, it was, it, and just took it. So that's what I feel like I'm doing. I'm moving into my elder position and just kind of marveling at what you guys do and how you do it and how you share information so instantaneously. As for the, the Black reporters that you're looking to connect through Rote, um, you've mentioned in our conversations about how like your generation was the kind to assimilate more. And then in my generation, like, you know, the people who kind of go out and start stuff on their own. Yes. Um, and so I think also with that, I think sometimes I see people in my generation, like my peers or people who are a little bit ahead of me, like 
aren't necessarily prioritizing like working with um, Black-owned publications um, because we have made progress in that regard and that we're, we're able to find opportunity in um, these larger spaces or these um, like typical, like honestly white-owned spaces. Um, and while they're not equitable, like do you think that that is a bad thing and how does your work with platforms like Rote and just in general, the work that the Obsidian Collection is doing work to build, you know, these archives, this network in spite of all that? So, you know, I don't think there's any one right answer. I, you know, I know what's best for me. I, I, whatever's in my DNA, it is entrepreneurial. I, I've had one job in my entire adult life. I mean, I've worked at McDonald's in high school back when the computers were man, the cash registers were manual. You had to know all the prices and know how to count and make change. But you know, all that's gone away, <laughs> but the, um, and, and so that I only got a job because when my son was young and I was newly divorced, we needed the healthcare. You know how America is set up. So, and it, and it was devastating. I mean, just every day, which I just thought I'm, I'm gonna die. I'm gonna, every day I'm gonna die, I'm gonna die. But I, I have, I only have one sibling and she would never start her own business. You know, so there's, you know, whatever's baked into your DNA, do it. You know, if it, if it feels good and doesn't harm somebody else, do it. I think we're all hardwired to pursue our own passions, whatever they are. I have a lot of friends that measure success by assimilating. Just getting to the biggest Fortune 500 table and being in the room is a victory. And, and I don't knock that. But, what I, but the story that doesn't get told is that in, the, in Black Chicago, when we were segregated and we were redlined to only be able to live here, we had 2000 black owned businesses. We had black doctor's office, black lawyers, black teachers, uh, black candlestick makers, we had everything. And we had six black newspapers. And that was when it was very difficult. It's not like, it's not like you could just start a website now you know, these were print that had to be circulated, that had to be sold. You know, we had six in Chicago alone. So I think we had a lot more, but the narrative is we got to save these Negroes from themselves. You know, if we don't go in there and gentrify, they're going to remain post-slavery animals. And the whole gap in between elevating jazz here in Chicago inventing house music because I went to, that was when I was in high school. I know those guys that invented house music that is now global. Um, elevating rap here. All of those stories don't get told. The only story that's told is, you know, South Chicago, we've left them on their own so long that if we don't gentrify, they're not going to have a sense to come in out of the rain. And, and, and that's exhausting because Chicago had the first, successful open heart surgery in the world was at the black hospital done by the black surgeon and Chicago's Provident Hospital was the only hospital in this country where black people could do their residency. So doctors moved here for at least two or three years. So that red line neighborhood was one of the, it was richer than Harlem. People, people had more money here than Harlem, but that story never gets told. So let those who want to assimilate, assimilate. 
but I'm hoping, and, 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 let, and when they tell stories, I hope they look at obsidian images too. And when they look for diversity, I hope they come to Rope to find some top black journalists as well. So pro-black isn't anti-white or anti-anything else, but I really wanna make a platform in today's technology so that black media content creators can have an, a couple of easier things. It's still gonna be difficult, you know. There's still a lot of paperwork and a lot of taxes and a lot of fees in America, but let's see if we can knock some of that other stuff out. And that's me as an entrepreneur thinking, shoot, how can we make this easier? And then how can listeners get involved with the Obsidian Collection, Rote, and um, your other projects? Well, I hope they would go to theobsidiancollection.org and you have to put in the, so it's theobsidiancollection.org and, and sign up to follow us because we're, we're new. We just launched our Obsidian Images page February 1st, you know, hey, Black History Month. <laughs> but follow us because we're gonna be rolling a lot of things out. I, I was there, I remember when Amazon was just selling books and he kept saying, we're gonna do other things. There's gonna be other things, you know? So I feel like, you know, we're, we're pre-Bezos, right? We're gonna do a lot of things for black content creation. We're gonna have a lot of good information. You guys are gonna see a lot of African-American history that you've never saw. And I hope it inspires all of your listeners to, for their, their theses, their dissertations, their stories, to go and look at what what really happened, what what we've done. And then, is there anything else that you would like to add? No, I just hope I I just want young people to uh, join us because I want you to see what really happened. That we, you know, these, and I I don't want to say we because we've got a lot of stories of my elders, you know, but they were killing the game. They did some amazing things and they were beautiful. They were thinner than me, but I'm trying not to be bitter about that, but they were stunning. And I want all of you guys to see that. That's it for this episode. You can find us on social media at better to speak underscore or on our website, better to speak.org. If you want to sponsor an episode and support Better to Speak, you can find the link to donate in the description of whatever podcasting platform you're listening on. Be sure to tune in to future episodes where we'll dive into various sociopolitical topics with the goal of transforming silence into language and action. Once again, I'm your host, Casey Felton. Thank you for listening.